the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. What seems to still be dominating, rightfully so, the news cycle is what's going on over in the Ukraine. And if you just sit down and watch stuff, it's it's devastating. Gut-wrenching. Gut-wrenching. Everything from that maternity hospital the other day Uh. to uh, a journalist was killed yesterday Mm. to just... I watched a thing on the Today Show this morning. It's like they're just strangling this one town, like cutting off all food and this and that. You're just... it's, It's awful. It's so terrible. It's awful. Now, something you are seeing is some people in Russia... Beginning to protest, yeah. beginning to rise yeah. up, much to their own danger. Yeah. Uh, and so I wanted to share one of those stories and, and just get your thoughts on it. A Russian Orthodox priest, uh, he went in his sermon, he went a little anti-war stance and was immediately arrested. Father wow. uh, Ion Burdin of the Resurrection Church in Russia's western region was detained for allegedly discrediting Russian military forces in his March 6th sermon for Forgiveness Sunday. Wow! In his sermon, uh, he spoke to his parishioners about, quote, Russian troops in Ukraine shelling the Ukrainian cities of Kiev, Odessa, Kharkiv, and killing citizens of the Ukraine, which he then referred to as brothers and sisters in Christ. He's going to be tried for anti-war sentiments and for publishing the link to an anti-war petition oh of which he is a signatory, a signatory on his parish website. So this is mm. uh it's pretty wild. Yeah. Uh, wow. He went on wow. to say in February he said we Christians cannot stand idly by when a brother kills a brother, a Christian kills a Christian. Let's not repeat the crimes of those who hailed Hitler's deeds on September 1, 1939. Uh uh, we all agree with what he says, but the boldness of this to knowing you're in Russia, you're yeah. you're, you're in behind a pulpit. People yeah. are going to report this really takes a lot of courage. Yeah, it takes a lot of courage and it's the right thing to do. Mm. You know what I mean? I mean, the, the fact that he obviously the guy has lived in Russia long enough to know that this would be the response to his outcry against war and his public uh, speaking out against the injustice and the casualties of war. And so. To take this type of stand, I'm sure also gives courage to the people that he ministers to, to neighbors around him. I I know this is so sacrificial for him, but I think what a great example. And it makes you think of other people in history, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, folks like that who um, against horrific regimes stood up and did the right thing to their own detriment, like sacrificed their own life for this. And. Also, I mean, let's just talk about the fact that this guy, this Russian priest, is arrested mm-hmm. for this. That's right. I, I mean, it just shows you the corrupt nature of the government in Russia right now. You see a lot of that going on. And, you know, I, 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 I am hesitant to make a parallel, Aubrey, because of what's going on there. There's no parallel to what's going on here. Yeah. With that said, as a pastor, as someone who speaks a lot, how do you know 
uh, when to make a statement, mm. make a stand. <laughs> what, what, how do you help us get behind the curtain to know when Aubrey says, I need to say something here versus like, you know, what wisdom here is to maybe do this behind the scenes, not behind a pulpit. You know what? I am not the best person to ask about this because I tend to shy away from conflict. You know who's really good at it? My husband. Not me. <laughs> My husband is very good, especially the sin of racism or the injustice of uh, racism and anything that reeks of white supremacy. My husband speaks out boldly, powerfully mm. from the pulpit on social media, and the dude has gotten a lot of flack for it. And so <laughs> I really, I'd, it used to freak me out. Because I was like, Kevin, why are you ruffling feathers? And I realized, oh, wait, the sin is the problem, not Kevin mm. speaking out about it. So I I commend and wish I had more of that it boldness hard, like this though. priest. It, yes, it is hard to know uh, in a much smaller settings like ours versus mm-hmm. what's going on in the Ukraine and Russia. Uh, what's the right time as you use the phrase to ruffle feathers? But I can't imagine being in this guy's shoes going, all right, if I do this. Yeah, I at the very least am going to be arrested. Right. I very well might end up dead or in Siberia or whatever else. Is it worth it? And like Mm -hmm. you brought up the names of Diedrich Bonhoeffer Mm -hmm. and others, the early church. We read the book of Acts where they were putting their lives on the line. And it does cause us to ask, ask the very similar question. Would we be willing to put our life? It's easy to preach about that, right? It's easy to say it. (laughs) Oh, yeah, we would give up. This guy is giving his life possibly for what he thinks is right, what he thinks needs to happen. And Mm. so uh, we'll say it again. We as Christians here in the West need to be praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ, for the church in the Ukraine and looking for other ways to help. But at the very least, we need to be on our knees praying that God would work powerfully. Well, coming up next, we're excited to be joined by Andrew Voigt, writer and blogger at Relevant Magazine, where he wrote how God can redeem the lost years of our broken past. Do we believe that God redeems broken things? That's what we're going to talk about next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. And Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by a writer and a blogger and somebody who recently at Relevant Magazine wrote an article entitled How God Can Redeem the Lost Years of our broken past. That author is Andrew Voigt. Andrew, how are you doing today? I am good. How are you? Absolutely doing well. We're, we love having you on. We're grateful for it. Before we dive into this article, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Well, it's, it's a long story, and I will spare <laughs> you. Uh, my name is Andrew Voigt. I live in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, and I got into writing back around 2012, speaking about brokenness and spirituality. As a Christian, mm-hmm. I didn't really know how to dive into talking mental health at the time. That was pre-mental um, health becoming a little more conversational in, in the church. So I would refer to it as brokenness. And over time, I realized people were writing me and saying that they were struggling. And over time, I just was thinking, you know, we need to talk about the real subject. Mm. in mental health and not just keep calling it brokenness. I've had my own journey over the years. I, As I said, it's a long story, but I'm 38 now. In my early 20s, I moved to Los Angeles to pursue a career in acting. And at the time, I was also struggling with some severe mental illness mm-hmm. with OCD. Mm. And I was going to a 
psychologist at Azusa Pacific University, which is a Christian university mm-hmm. not far from L.A. I learned a lot about my mental health. I learned a lot about the concepts that, that would go into mental health counseling, learning from my, my counselor. And I, it was one of those experiences that I didn't know my thoughts were relevant to a lot of other people. I thought it was crazy. Mm. I legitimately did. Mm. And I remember sitting and he would finish my sentences for me the very first time I went. I did not want to meet with a psychologist. Mm. I totally did not. My mom had, <laughs> my mom being my mom had connected with this guy and set me up with a, a meeting. And I remember just bawling. I was sitting there crying mm. my heart out. Mm. This man understood. And he told me, you're not crazy. You just, you got some, some anxiety problems. And mm. over time I went through years of counseling. I moved back to Charlotte and I started writing about my journey. A friend of mine who is a pastor suggested that I, I share my story. So I started to do that. Didn't know where it would go. Turned into me creating a blog, basically just talking about these, these subjects for the most part. Mm. And over the last, few years, about three years ago, my former psychologist who I had worked with recommended that I go into mental health counseling. Mm. I was wrestling with where I was in my career. Mm. And I was thinking, you know what, if I can write about this and talk about it, why not, why not do it? Yeah. So I started looking at schools and I'm currently at Marshall University in West Virginia. I'm not living there, but I do distance doing clinical mental health counseling uh, master's degree. Mm. That's great. So I'm hoping to go into that in the next few years. Good for you, man. Uh, Good so for you. awesome. And Andrew, with that in mind, I guess the question I have is, I do feel like the church has generally not done a fantastic job addressing mental health. Like there hasn't been a lot of good intersectionality between faith and mental health. And I wonder if you just have any... Any, it's a big question, but any thoughts on how the church can begin to do better, create mm-hmm. more space for people who are struggling with things like you realized you were struggling with? Well, I have to say, to give the church a little credit, the last five years, a lot of pastors and speakers have been talking about it. Mm-hmm, that's true. So we are hearing more about it, way more than we used to. That's right. I remember when I was in, when I started my journey in 2008 through counseling, um, 2007, whatever it was. I was in a different place. The church really wasn't talking about it. Now, I would say one of the best things that I've seen and what we need to continue to build upon are what I would call Christian counseling centers. I don't mean Christian counseling centers in this concept of teaching people that you need to trust in God more, you need to read the Bible more. Not that kind. I'm talking about people who are trained therapists, psychologists, and people who also share your faith. I think for me, my therapist was a guy named Dr. David Russ in here in Charlotte. He's a believer, but he also has his doctorate degree in psychology. And he was very, very much a specialist when it comes to obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm. And I would argue that after, (laughs) I I don't know if this is anything to be embarrassed of saying, but I'm going to share it anyway. After 12 years of counseling with the man, uh, throughout my journey, I don't recall a single time that he ever said that my spirituality was lacking or my faith mm-hmm. was missing something. 
I think more people like that, I'm not saying people have to go to a Christian. That is not what I'm saying. Go to a therapist who is an atheist. I don't care. But I think being in the church, if somebody feels more comfortable around somebody who has the same faith, I think that can help. But we have to have more people who are trained mental health therapists who understand this is not a spiritual issue. I don't think it is. Mm. I think the more I've learned, the more I've grown, I see that there are a lot of things, even in my studies right now, so many neurological things go into our mental health, whether it be good or bad, anxiety, depression. And I just, I really encourage people to find help wherever, but I think more and more Christians should get into the field. Mm. And I think more and more Christians should do it, not from a spiritual standpoint, but from an actual mental health clinical standpoint. Yeah. 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 Andrew, uh, what have you learned personally about God through this whole process? How has your faith uh, ebbed and flowed? How has it changed? Talk to us a little bit about that journey between uh, in your faith journey. It's come and gone. I mean, Mm -hmm. not that I've left my faith. I don't mean it in that regard. I became, I I basically started following Christ when I was 13. And Mm -hmm. funny enough, I at a Billy Graham crusade of all things. <laughs> nice. He was a hero of mine. Yeah. And I, when I got to my late teenage years and started the college experience, that's when my anxieties got pretty high. And I started to question where my faith was, where God was. Moved to LA, was pursuing the acting thing. And that's when my life started really falling apart financially. And I, my faith started to get shipwrecked. Mm. I came back to, to Charlotte to live with my family. And like every good failed actor, I got a job at Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what, that's what you do. If you're an artist and you fail, you, you go to Starbucks. During that season, I was struggling a lot with my faith. Mm. I was angry at God. I felt like God had abandoned my dreams that I thought were his dreams. I, at one point, believe it or not, I 100% sincerely believed God wanted me to to pursue the acting world. And when I failed and when I came home with $7,000 of debt, an anxiety disorder that greatly limited my freedom in life. Mm -hmm. OCD for anybody who knows what OCD is, it can really wreck you. Yeah. And I was angry. So I, I kind of pushed God off a little bit and didn't want to deal with, God mm. at the time. And then I ran into a guy, I was going to a church with my sister. She invited me to go to her church. She lived here. Met a guy who was in seminary, was going to be a pastor. He was going to plant a church in the future, and he was volunteering at the church. He said, let's go get coffee. So we, we went, and, he, and I just opened up and told him what I was dealing with. He was very genuine and cared. And I remember him just looking across the table up at me. We were sitting at Barnes & Noble, and he said, Andrew, your father loves you. Mm. I genuinely hadn't heard that in a long time. I had been wow. so angry at God. Wow. And I started to cry in Barnes Noble. I was mm. an emotional human being. Mm. <laughs> at that time. Mm. I still kind of am, but I was pretty emotional at that point in my life. And that kind of tilted the direction of where my faith went. I started to really seek God again figure out why did, why did this happen to me? Why was this happening? Mm-hmm. 
reading books and praying. And then he's the same individual that said, why don't you start writing about these things? I think other believers might be struggling and they might resonate with it. So I did. And it was about the third blog posts that I wrote. I had like maybe two readers, my mom and dad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And this guy writes me, I never met the guy. He sends me a message and says, Hey, I just want you to know I'm a believer, Hmm. but I have also been struggling with severe depression and I really needed what you said. Mm. And it was one of the first times I had felt meaningful to somebody in a long time. I had tried to get into acting. I had failed. I had tried to do so many different things. And here I thought I was just this crazy guy with OCD. Mm. And this other human being was encouraged by something. So I just kept doing it. And I saw that God was working in what I was sharing. It's cliche, I know, but God works through our brokenness. Mm. He really does. I know it's cliche. But I genuinely have learned, if I've learned anything, I mean, look at me, I'm trying to be a counselor now. I never, <laughs> 16 years ago, I would have been like, are you kidding? I'm yeah. in LA trying to be an actor. Why, why would I be a clinical mental health counselor? Why would I do that? And God has worked through that to get me to a place where now I want to help people who are hurting. Yeah. Thank you so much for that story. And I, I think it's a cliche because it's true. Yeah, and, exactly. and I think you are a testament to that. Again, the article is called How God Can Redeem the Lost Years of Our Broken Past. You can find that at Relevant Magazine. Uh, also, you can learn more about Andrew and his writing at Andrew Voigt. That's V-O-I-G-T, net, And also on Twitter, at Andrew Voigt. That's at Andrew Voigt. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. I know it was a blessing to many people. We appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Aubrey, that music only means one thing. Like, it gets you fired up. It gets you fired up. For a little segment we like to call Grinds My Gears. (laughs) And let me give you the reminder of Grinds My Gears, something we do regularly here on The Common Good. Grinds My Gears, Aubrey, is the chance for a little palate cleanser for us. It is our chance to to vent about something. Yes. Here's what we're not going to vent about. The big things. We understand that there is a war in the Ukraine. Right. We understand that COVID is still in existence. We understand that gasoline prices are high, although I did vent about gasoline prices the other day. We understand it. We're more looking for some small things. Yes. What are those little annoyances yes. in your life or some personal things that have gotten to us that we want to... Uh, unleash about. Would you like to go first or would you like me to go first? Um, I, let's hear you go first, Brian. This morning, uh, I went to the grocery store. Oh, that's nice. So my lovely wife, she she graces, graciously made an entire grocery list, typed it out so I could cross out. So very specific. Love that. Okay? I used to love going to the grocery store. I get a, a podcast, put headphones on and go. And I did that today. Podcast, headphones, etc. For some reason, maybe I'm just out of practice. I left the grocery store feeling like I had just taken the SATs. <laughs> Seriously? To find the specific things uh, and to search in the aisles yeah. and to feel the, like, to, to just, I don't know what it was. Maybe, again, I'm out of practice. Maybe we've done enough online purchasing that it's a lot easier. But, like, I was proud of myself yeah. because I think it's cheaper and you can do this, you can do this. I was so 
unbelievably worn out. Well, you know, remember when you used to take tests and your brain hurt? Yes, that's how you felt after going grocery shopping. I did, and I'm not it, sure why, because I used to love moved? it. Has moved? Is it because of COVID? Like, what? Things what's happening? Things haven't moved. I think that there's more. Is it because like, you're listening to... to a podcast? You should be monotasking and not multitasking? No, okay. no. I'm a good multitasker. Okay. I think it's just the specifics, especially the produce um, area. Like, okay. when, I, when okay. I've got to get... Like, you know, when Carrie writes on basil, I'm like, yeah. I'm going to get the right basil or, or, or yellow onion or this or that. I'm like, I just feel all this pressure. Oh, wow. I really struggled with the grocery store today. It hurt my brain. Wow. Okay. Okay. I appreciate that. But I've... I think I might have gotten 100% on the test. I was about to ask you. I, I can't wait to hear what your wife says. Except What's her one, review? She goes, she goes, why'd you get frozen beans? And I was like, oh. I didn't because it's supposed to be frozen peas. But then I remembered I reached oh. around a person who was right there and I just grabbed the wrong thing. Ah, uh, okay. So you, you got User minus error. one. User okay, error. Minus but I did one. okay on the test. But man, did I leave there tired. Wow. I want to know more about what that's about for you. But well done doing the grocery shopping right uh, i'm excited for really yours good. okay <laughs> mine is the old hair in the elevator <laughs> trick that people do no i was riding the elevator uh this morning to our studio here mm-hmm. at our offices which we love and i looked down and there was a clunk of hair on the floor of the elevator I took a picture of it to show you thank you for that and it was disgusting it made me think someone got a haircut it made me think there was a fight and it someone pulled not, out hair. I, I want to make sure we paint the picture. It was you not it. a small amount of hair. No, it was not like your hair kind of accidentally shed it. It was like a clump, a clump is of the right way to put it. Hair, and I don't know. Who, it's not, I don't know whose job it is to vacuum that. But that's still there. But the point is, the for hair hours. in the elevator, or for hours, because we checked later and it, the hair was still there. We did not pick it up. Uh, but you know, things like people drink coffee and throw their coffee cups on the floor of the elevator. Like maybe just don't leave your hair in your garbage on the elevator floor because other people use it. So that grinds my gears, and I think it's gross. I think I would separate the two, but call would both you? of them bad. Okay. Like, if you're going to be one of those people who litter and leave a Starbucks uh-huh. cup for uh-huh. somebody else to pick up in the elevator, you're just a bad person. <laughs> like, you're just legitimately a bad person. Yeah, okay, fair. If you're going to leave an enormous chunk of hair yeah. that looks like it was either cut yeah. or ripped out, you're a gross person right, and a gross. bad person. So I'm going to get the only way it's acceptable is if this person on the elevator is going through chemo and doesn't realize the hair is falling out and left without looking back. And I give that person grace and I That's will pray fair. for them and I love them. Any other person is gross you and disgusting. Trimming your hair. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right, I have a second one. Okay. And I think you're going to uh, maybe you're, you're going to be able to get in with this one. Because everyone's complaining about this. Oh, I know what you're going to say. Yes. I love that it's let it's bright out outside. Right now it's bright outside. It's going to be bright it's out amazing. till like 630 or something. But daylight savings time. I think we can be done with it now. And here's what it is. It is horrifying. I'm going to vent about two parts of this. Okay. The actual daylight savings time, which as a pastor, does it always need to be on a Saturday does night? Does it always need to be on a Saturday night? Does I it? echo that. Yep. So that's one. Okay. But maybe I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth here. Not everybody needs to post about their frustrations on on daylight savings time. <laughs> we'll do it on the show, but no one else. Should. I understand you lost an hour of sleep. <laughs> right, I get we it. all did. We all did. Yeah, a lot of our people miss church because yeah. of it or yes. whatever else. Yes. So I'm I'm I want to vent about daylight savings time. Yeah, and about people venting about daylight savings time. <laughs> 
that does seem unfair, Brian, that you're you're it not does, allowing people to live up to your own. It does give me a chance to mess with my wife a little bit. because Why? What do you do? Do you change the clocks? Well, no. So, you know, we all have these mental blocks in our life, like yeah. things that shouldn't be confusing or difficult. We all have them. But we can't quite get them. Yeah. I, I've got those. Yes. I've got those in my life yes. for sure. Uh, my beautiful and lovely wife, one of those for her is time change. Really? In it, what way? She, she can never remember if it's going forward, forward or going backward. backward. She does about spring forward, she fall back? She does. <laughs> That's what I mean by just a mental block. Like there is, gotcha. there is just something that, that she just gets. In. And I am, <laughs> I like to think that I'm a loving husband. Yeah. I mess with her all the time. Oh, you're mean. I what did. do you say? Like, oh, maybe year, it is backwards. And, and w- this did not work. But one year I tried to convince her it was going to go back an hour and a half. <laughs> I can totally see you doing that. That is so and mean much and to her, Much to her, she did not fall for that. But yeah. uh, but no, it's just a mental block. But I'm going to, let's not vent, let's vent about time change, but not uh, not everybody needs to post. Maybe one person can post about time change for and the rest of us, of us can like it. Okay. That's Grinds My Gears. Grocery store, hair in the elevator, and time change. Getting it off of our chest. Well, stay with us. We're going to talk more about the Ukraine and then be joined by Sarah Zylstra from the Gospel Coalition. All of that coming up here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. We're so thrilled that you're with us today. You remember Gail Stubbs was on the show just last week. He's a Ukrainian teacher in the States, goes to our church talking about his obvious um, heartache and everything that he's seeing. Well, his wife spoke at our church on Sunday very briefly, but um, she talked about how Gail is going back to Poland to be a little bit closer to what's going on. But she also just shared her heart Mm. and, you know, hearing from someone who lives in the Ukraine talking about, look, streets where I used to walk are no longer there. Restaurants I used to visit, no longer there. Places that are home are no longer there. Friends are no longer there. And Mm. then she specifically was talking about the children of the Ukraine, especially the little people. And she was very emotional talking about the children in Ukraine, the things they're seeing, the ways they've been separated from their families, and some of whom aren't going to survive this. And her biggest call was for us to pray. Mm. And she kept saying, you know, I know I know we all want to do something and give financial support and, and bring, you know, items, which we should. There are refugees coming into different countries from Ukraine that do need those practical items. She was saying simultaneously, let's not forget to pray. Mm. Um, and she was calling the church especially to pray for the little ones. And so, Brian, I, I thought you and I in a little bit could spend yeah. a few minutes praying for the kids in Ukraine and praying for some other things in Ukraine because you know, some of the latest news that's coming out, there was an American journalist, Brent Renault, who was shot and killed by Russian forces in Ukraine. There are churches all around Ukraine, including Poland, stretching to serve uh, the Ukrainian refugees. We know that there's been this long seven hour talk with uh, the U.S. and China amid this war. We don't know necessarily the nature of that talk, but certainly there's there's concern about um, where this could go. Escalation. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And. and- 
we we do need to be praying and watching. I think part of the call to be prayerful is also to be informed mm. and to know what's going on, right? Yeah. Like what could happen if this kind of spills over into Poland? What happens this whole debate about a no-fly zone and what would that mean? Why doesn't America want to engage a no-fly zone? Mm-hmm. Well, that pulls us more into the conflict and this and that. What what is what are the Ukrainian people asking for? Where is this all going? Like I think understanding what's happening is so important but then to in order so that we can be praying and helping in any yeah. way that we can but Aubrey what about the person out there who's going I don't know prayer doesn't seem to matter I'm sure mm. people were praying that Putin would never go in there in yeah. the first place yeah. or you know make it more personal you know my my loved one was sick and I prayed and nothing seemed to happen right. like what about the right. people let me ask you a really easy question. What about the people who are like, <laughs> does prayer even actually yeah, work? Why yeah, bother? Yeah, it's a really good question. One of the things that we were reminded of at church on Sunday from um, Gail Stubbs' wife, Alyssa, she she said, look, we may not be able to see what God is doing, but th- I promise you, our Ukrainian friends sense that God is with them, and mm. he senses God is with them because of your prayers. And so I think even if you, even if right now we're not seeing Putin change his mind, we're not seeing an end to this. What we know anecdotally through personal stories is that somehow God is being near, close, comforting the Ukrainian people who are suffering so deeply right now. And so if nothing else, mm-hmm. keep praying for them. Like it, It's not about you at this point. Pray that the Ukrainian people sense God's presence with them and continue to pray in faith that God brings an end to this because God does hear the prayers of his people. That's a promise. And we know that God is not far removed from this war, but is somehow in the middle of it. Uh, somehow doing something that we can't understand. And let me just share this statistic that the Gospel Coalition shared. In the chaos of the last two weeks, more than two million Ukrainian and others have fled Ukraine Mm. in the fastest growing refugee crisis in Europe since World War II. That's unbelievable. Yes. This exodus accounts for nearly 5% of Ukraine's population. So I I think uh, let's also be praying for Poland because more than one million of those refugees have crossed into Poland. And let's remember, like, this is a major crisis and we are called as Christians to care for refugees. And so if we're if for no other reason, let's be praying for that. And I do think that when we when we ask the question, does prayer work like Mm -hmm. on a much more bigger for, you know, a personal level? I I think something we've said before, Aubrey, is that to start from the premise that God is good mm. and that God is active, I think allows us some freedom in prayer That's good, Brian. to go, okay, I'm going to pray that my loved one's cancer would go away. Yeah. Like I'm invited by God to pray these prayers, to come into his throne room, to ask these things. I'm invited to do these things, but that I can still trust that God is good. Even if those things don't happen, I think that's where this becomes you know, that's where the rubber meets the road a little bit. So I'd say yeah. let's accept the invitation by Almighty God to pray. Yeah. And then let's allow uh, our, not that he needs our permission, but let's allow um, God to be God and to say, you know what? I, I'm not going to, my prayers aren't going to like manipulate how this goes. Absolutely. But instead to go, he's good. I can trust him. Yeah. And I we can continue to pray as he calls us to yeah. pray. So I think that's that's kind of the sweet spot for me mm. when it comes to prayer. Like if it's like, well, if God doesn't answer this, then he's not good. Mm. 
You know, that's that's problematic. And so that that is hopefully an encouragement for people as we pray. Yeah. And with that in mind, let's dive into prayer and just kind of tacking on that quickly, Brian. One of the things that Tim Keller says about prayer, and it's I'm going to butcher it more beautiful than this, but essentially that God answers our prayers as if we were praying um if we had the perspective he had. That's right. And so God God uh, answers our prayers with his perspective. And I think that's really helpful for us to remember. Mm, that's all right, right, Brian, would you offer a word for the kiddos, especially in Ukraine, for um, all of the refugees that are mm-hmm, leaving mm-hmm. And, and for Russia as well? Yeah, absolutely. Heavenly Father, uh, it's an honor to be able to pray, Lord. And um, I pray right now, God, for the kids in the Ukraine, Lord. It's honestly unimaginable of what they're experiencing uh, Father, would you be uh, protective? Would mm-hmm. you be present? Um, God, we continue to also pray for the kids in Russia who are probably trying to know what's how, what's all going on as well. Lord, for all of these millions and hundreds of thousands of refugees, Lord, um, God, we pray that they would know your care so deeply. I, again, to sound like a broken record, I can't imagine what they're going through. Um Father, for the church in the Ukraine, we pray that the gospel in the midst of the darkness would be such a bright light and would shine. And then ultimately, Lord, we also pray that you would miraculously cause uh, Putin to put the arms down, to Mm. to, to stop this war, this brutality. Um, God, we are grateful that you are good, that we can trust you, and that we look forward to a day where war will not exist yeah. anymore yeah. and we can trust you, God. So be, uh, we're grateful that you are God and we are not and mm-hmm. that we can trust you. And we pray all these things for the people of the Ukraine, Lord. We pray them in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for that, mm-hmm. Brian. Well, mm-hmm. when we return, we're going to talk about some phrases Christians should avoid saying. That'll be a fun one. When we return, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host Brian Fromm. And we're just dancing right now in the studio, having a good time with the sunshine and with the music. We hope you are having an enjoyable evening. Brian, you and I are pastors. We are. And because of that, we can admittedly get into Christian bubbles. (laughs) And because of that, we can admittedly use something called Christian ease. Mm. Uh, Can you explain to the listeners out there what Christian ease is? Yeah, and I think we're both probably very stooped in it, as you said. We host a radio show. We are pastors. We both went to Wheaton College. We are professional Christians. So... Christian ease, think about this. What are the phrases or words that you use as a Christian with other Christians that people outside of the faith would not understand? Yeah. And I know you're probably thinking, oh, do you mean like theological terms? Sure. But I also mean terms that are they just wouldn't get. Yeah. And, uh, and and here's why that's important, Ari. Besides it being kind of hokey and funny, mm-hmm. is if you're a non-Christian— and you come and visit this church and you're like, okay, I kind of want to see, I'm, I'm open to hearing this thing. And all of a sudden, there's just all this stuff going on at the church and being said at the church and things that are, seem odd to you that mm-hmm. are never explained. Yeah. You're going to feel other. You're going to yes. feel outside. And there are times where there's a, you know, a church family and someone from the outside. It's, yeah. it's appropriate to feel quote unquote other. And hopefully that goes down over time. Sure. But, just by the language we mm-hmm. use or even so I I sometimes think about this because I've always been in the church my whole life. I've always been a Christian. What are the things that would be odd if I showed up at a church mm, that's if I wasn't a Christian? I One of them, I think, would be just the idea of singing. 
Totally. Like, so sometimes that might need some explanation. The idea of, of, um, you know, open up your Bibles to, you know, Leviticus 4 and someone going, I have no idea what that is. Or, you know, there's all sorts of things. The question is, what are the barriers we put towards that are unnecessary? Yes. But uh, are barriers to somebody who has not grown up in the church and of not of faith to considering it at all. There yeah. are barriers that are appropriate, yeah. but what are the non-appropriate, non-essential barriers that go up? I think this is such a helpful discussion, Brian, because I I mean, part of my grad school work was really learning this, like how, okay, so someone does walk into a church and you you start standing up to sing. Well, the church people know the cue to start doing that. Right. They know why they're doing that, but it's almost like the worship pastor needs to take a moment to say, we're about to stand up and sing. Here's why we do this every Sunday. And and uh, for example, when you said turn to Leviticus 4, you might want to say, this is a book in the Old Testament. It's one of the first few books. You go to the front of your Bible if you need to and look up the table of contents. Like there are there are ways to do what you're doing, mm-hmm. but just offer some explanation for why. And I think I've gotten out of that habit, to be frank, perhaps because of COVID, perhaps just because of life, perhaps because I've been in a Christian bubble. But I bring this up because on Sunday I said something in my sermon and my husband called me out for it and he was right to do so. I was really glad he did later, not publicly. But um, I said something like, you might be familiar with this story. Mm. And then I opened up the passage of scripture and Kevin said, uh, don't assume people in the room are familiar with any Bible mm. stories because some people will and some people are not. That's and right. as soon as you've done that, you've alienated half the audience. Just say, open up your Bibles to this. And if you're talking about, for instance, Simon Peter, don't assume people know who Simon Peter is. Simon Peter was a dude who Jesus called into ministry. Like, just use language like that. And I was like, okay, thank you. I really needed that reminder. Why is that so important, Brian? Or what are some other examples of that? So I had one. I remember early on in our church, because here's the deal. When you're at a church, you, you want people to come who don't know much. Uh, and are new to the faith, mm-hmm. and then you do things that alienate those people from coming. Totally, right? I remember early on, some uh, a new family started coming, and I was getting to know the guy. And I said, "Hey, let's grab coffee sometime. Let's meet up." At that point, it was a caribou in town, yeah. and we met up for coffee. And he said, "I just," he said, "I've been meaning to ask you something," and I'm like, "Okay." He said, and this was just like a sledgehammer. Like, oh, this is exactly what we're talking about. This guy said to me, he said. Every t- whenever you talk about the disciples, I don't know who you're talking about. Wow. And I'm like, well, I would think, you know, in our minds, everybody Everyone knows, knows the who disciples. the disciples are. Because mm. when I was, a, you know, I was four years old, probably, and yeah. someone said the disciples, so they've always been a part. Wow. But this guy, completely unchurched, new to the faith, goes, can you help me understand who they are? And so we had a talk wow. and I explained it, but that has always been in my mind. Now, instead of in the service going, the disciples, maybe be like, the disciples who were the original followers of Jesus. Here's some so of good, them. Brian. You know, it's so easy to do. Mm-hmm. So we're not talking about watering down theology. Right, right. We're not talking about doing things that are, you know, like trying to pretend that you're not a church. Yeah. That's not what anybody's saying right. here. What are the unnecessary barriers yes. that we put up? You know what yeah. another one is? What? If your church is one that passes the offering plate, uh-huh. that's totally legit. We do. We yeah. we did up until COVID. Yeah. We will again. But explain what you're explain doing. Explain what you're doing. Hey, every week, if you're visiting, don't worry about this. Yeah. But every week we do this. This is for people who call this church our home yeah. to support the ministries that we do here. Yeah. As opposed to like, hey, 
Here's your ticket price. We're going to pass this down. Right. That's so good. Things like communion, things like singing, all of that. Just think, just go through your mind and go, what are people going to, like, if if I was visiting, what would I be thinking? Andy Stanley's great at this. If you've ever listened to some of Andy Stanley stuff, this is a big one for him. I would say another one that came to um, light for me a few years ago was we, we don't have small groups. We have renewal communities, but we were talking about small groups and somebody like sheepishly raised their hand and was like, I what are you talking about when you say small group? And it was just like, that's such a church thing. You're so used to like small group, a group of people to gather around the word or do life together, whatever. But no one else outside of church is talking about like a small group meeting on a Wednesday night. Even that kind of language. It's so important for us to be intentional so that people feel welcome. Let's hear it. I was early on in our church's life. I was preaching about baptism. Okay. And I was explaining it. Like, here's what baptism is. Here's, you know, just kind of our thoughts on baptism. And a lady who was like a visitor, she'd been there maybe a week or two. And she raised her hand in the middle of the sermon. (gasps) Oh. And so you think to yourself, people... Oh, you're not supposed to raise your hand in the middle of the sermon. But again, if you were visiting, you were new to the whole church yeah. thing. Maybe you would. Yes. She raised her hand and I was like, uh, I was like, pause. I was like, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. And I asked, like, what's your question? And thinking we're about to get some theological question about baptism. Yeah. I, I was baptized as a baby. Whatever. Yeah. She raised her hand and she goes, do you wear a swimsuit? <laughs> That's amazing. There you go. That's what we're talking about. And so I think it's really helpful, not just in the church, but when you're talking about Christian things, when you're talking about the church, what are things that other people wouldn't understand that become barriers? And, uh, you know, the number one is what I told you the other day. Uh, let's do life let's together. Let's do life together. Yeah, there are some <laughs> other phrases like that. Actually, over at churchleaders.com, there's an article by Ben Reed, 12 things not to say. He says in a small group, but I think this actually works across all levels of the church. He says that one. Don't say we're here to do life together. Uh, he also says PTL, like praise <laughs> the Lord. Uh, the other one, this happens a lot in church. God is good. And you pause and people respond all the time. And then you uh, say all the time. People respond. God is good. I actually like doing that, but I think that's another example where you need to pause and say, here's why we're doing this. Here's why we're saying this. Um, And then sometimes you got to let go and let God. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's another good one. And he talks about just also not making people feel dumb Mm, for their questions. So important. Or asking new people to pray out loud or talking about those things. So just uh, this is difficult, Aubrey, but it it also makes sense. So just... Don't make people feel like outsiders. Again, this isn't about theology. This isn't about church practice. This is about language we use and assumptions that we make that make people go, oh, I'm not welcome to you. Yeah, that's so good. Okay, I'll say one more last one. One more, Brian. Another one is if you're talking about like the quote unquote original Greek (laughs) or original Hebrew, original language without any explanation that certainly turns people off we all just do that we think it makes us we think it makes us sound smart that's all it is absolutely do well when we return brian we're joined by a friend of the show sarah zylstra she's a senior writer and faith and work editor for the gospel coalition she's the co-author of a book called gospel bound she's going to talk to us about six things christians should know about generation z so you are not going to want to miss that conversation with sarah zylstra You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host Brian Fromm, and we are thrilled to be joined by Sarah Zylstra. She's a friend of the show. She's also a senior writer and faith and work editor for the Gospel Coalition. She's the co-author of a book called Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. Sarah, we're so glad that you're with us again to talk about a few of your articles over the Gospel Coalition. Thanks for being here. I love to join you. Thanks so much for asking. We uh, don't give the title friend of the show to a lot of people, (laughs) but you have it. Ed Stetzer has it. Karen Swallow Pryor has it. So it's fun to have you in that crew. Um, So, Sarah, you wrote something at the Gospel Coalition in February called Six Things Christians Should Know About Gen Z. And I love that title because I do think a lot of Christians that are older than Gen Z are, you know, oh, Gen Z this, Gen Z that. And so I would love for you to just tell us what are those six things we need to know? Yeah, isn't that interesting? I mean, it's so easy to look at a younger generation. And some of the stereotypes of what we think about them are true. Mm. Um, they are, you know, they're less likely to, they're less religious than other than other generations. They're more uh, liberal than other generations. They're mm. more likely to have a TikTok account than other generations. Mm. So it's not, we're not entirely wrong. Those yeah. things are true. Yeah. Um, so, but there, there's also a lot of, um, like every generation, that's not like they're worse than any other generation that came before them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so a couple of things. One, um, as I already mentioned, is that they are less, um, they're just less, they're more atheist. They're less, mm. they're farther removed from God, which was really interesting. I was talking to one gentleman, a campus pastor, and he said to me, you know, it used to be I'd talk to kids and they'd say their parents talked to them about their faith or their parents were saved or their parents brought them to church. And now just in the last couple of years, Kids say their grandparents are the ones who, like, if he says, do you, do you know anything about God? It's their grandparents who maybe brought them to church once in a while, or their grandparents who um, had some sort of a faith. Huh. So, it's, yeah, so that just in the last couple of years has flipped to where there's just a one more generation it seems wow. like between a college kid and, and a faithful adult. Wow. Yeah, isn't that interesting? That's yeah. really Very interesting. Sarah, let me ask you this. So for some people who get all the names confused, remind us the age demographics okay. of Gen Z. And then a broader question, why does it matter that we talk about the differences in generations and kind of understand uh, what makes this generation different from the other? So what's the breakdown and then why does it matter? Yep. So the the very front, the oldest Gen Zers turn 25 this year. Mm. So they are just basically leaving college, getting their first apartments, getting those first jobs, entering the workforce, maybe coming to, you know, if you're a pastor, they're starting to walk into your church, maybe as an adult on their own. And I think that goes down to about sixth grade, which is when they're starting the newest generation Mm. I just heard. Um, hmm. so, and, and above them, of course, would be, um, the millennials. Yeah. And then on top of that would be Gen X. And on top of that would be baby boomers. And then even older than that would be the greatest generation, um, or sometimes the silent generation, mm-hmm. which is, um, so those are sort of how they break down. I think what's just interesting is that you can, each generation, it's like a class in a classroom, right? Or a family almost like there's sort of these uh, growing up in, in, and having those same form, largely formative experiences, it shapes a generation's personality. Mm. And so it's, it's definitely not prescriptive, um, but it is sort of, I think it's like being in school together and you sort of have the same memories and the same things that shaped you. And so that's how it can just be helpful. Um, for people to see like, oh, that characteristic, we know that where that's coming from. Mm -hmm. And with that in mind, Sarah, what are some of the things that shaped Gen Z to, 
you know, become who they are right now? Far and away, hands down, the biggest thing that shaped this generation was growing up with smartphones Mm. and social media and digital. Like, they are more digitized than any other generation before them. And that has come with a whole slew of uh, side effects, I guess you would call it. Primarily, of course, the ones that people are the most worried about are the isolation. Suicides are up. Depression is up. Loneliness is up. Um, all those things, which you can pretty directly tie to uh, being on your phone all the time, mm. um, are exactly what, what you're seeing crop up in this generation. Mm. So they they want community, they want friendships, and yet they aren't that good at them, mm. uh, to be honest. It's hard for them to have offline. They struggle more with offline relationships. Mm. Which is just so fascinating. I've got kids in this uh, demographic, and so... To even think about that. And and one of the most striking things you say in the article, Sarah, is you say even before COVID, Gen Z was the loneliest generation on record, which you just touched on. So I guess two parts. Can you continue to unpack that? Like why exactly they're the loneliest? Because you'd think, uh, hey, I'm more connected to my friends. I've got more avenues through my phone or whatever else. So you'd be more tied to your friends, not lonelier. So help us with that. And then what role has COVID played in this generation? You're exactly right. I thought exactly like you did, Brian. I was like, this doesn't make any sense. These kids have 3,000 friends on Facebook. Yeah, so, right, you know, right. You know, like, what do you mean you're lonely? Um, but there's a couple things that play into that. One is just, you know, if you're on your phone, you're not with the people you're with. Anytime you look around a restaurant and see people on their phone, they're not with the people they're with. They're with the people they're not with. Mm. Kind of confusing, but you know what I mean? Like, you're not. So they're they're losing out on the relationship that's right in front of them. Um, and another thing is that uh, nobody, the relationships on social media are pretty shallow, yeah. right? Like I'm yeah. posting my my best parts of my day. I just talked to a, a girl, um, a college student the other day, and she's like, I only post pictures I feel like I look perfect in. Mm, that's hard. So they're only posting perfect pictures or perfect moments. And they're looking at everybody else's perfect pictures and perfect moments. And you can imagine, like, you know yourself. Um, you know you're not perfect, but you're just looking at everybody else's highlight reel. Um, and so, um, especially in those formative years, and especially statistics show for girls, mm-hmm. it's extremely difficult. You're doing a lot of comparison, a lot of body comparison they're mm-hmm. doing, a lot of relationship comparison. Mm-hmm. Anytime somebody else's friends go out, this girl I was talking to was like, man, I felt like all my friends at other colleges were having more fun than me mm-hmm. because I was looking at their pictures online. And every time they did something even kind of fun, they'd put up this great picture. And she was like, oh, man, I'm not did I go to the wrong college? Mm. You know, like all these questions that you're, as you're trying to find yourself, mm. um, boy, is it hard to do when you uh, think you should be perfect all the time. Uh, yeah. That is, so, yeah, that's a lot of pressure for that generation. Sarah, mm-hmm. something that you write about in this article that I'm fascinated by, because I'm, I'm really interested in evangelism, this, this uh, notion of pre-evangelism. Can you unpack that for our listeners? Yeah. So this has been it's not a super new idea. Tim Keller has been writing about this for quite a while, but the, the idea is, okay, so back in the day, you could have a Billy Graham crusade. You could drive a church bus through a neighborhood, fill it up with people who weren't believers, bring them to the Billy Graham crusade. Mm-hmm. And then 45 minutes later, they'd walked out, walk out saved. Right. Well, the reason for that was they, they all lived in a culture that honored pastors. They lived in a culture that honored Christianity, that 
saw good things in um, Christian principles of, you know, honoring other people, serving the weak, uh, loving your enemies, caring for the poor, like all of that was, it was just a seen in a different light. And so you almost like being saved then was quite easy. You just thought, well, you kind of already felt like you should do it. And then Billy Graham pulls on you just right. And you tip over into what you basically already believed, but mm. you decide to give your life to it. Mm. That is not the case anymore. Um, we have, we have tipped away from that since the nineties that's been changing. Um, but, but more and more so. And now the reputation of Christianity, especially among Gen Z is that maybe it's a Republican thing. Maybe it's a Southern thing um you know they're just since their parents aren't showing it to them they're yeah. getting their idea of christianity from the media yeah. or from news stories and that has not uh, been super positive mm-hmm. and so it's that's just not something they want to tip over into and so in order to even get to that god conversation you have to start by building a relationship and some trust so that you can then bring that into a, a relationship about God. People are so like to talk about God. That's right. That's what everybody's telling me. Everybody likes to talk about God. You just can't do it from a stage anymore. You got to do it across a table at a coffee shop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And let me ask you, let's end with this, Sarah, with the last minute or two that we have pastors, uh, Aubrey and I are both pastors, right? We want to reach that next generation. We want to mm-hmm. do our church. Well, what would, what's one or two things you would tell a pastor, maybe think about this for your church or maybe make this change. What, what should this mean for the church? Uh, one thing is, remember that community they're looking for? Mm-hmm. Um, pull those kids into community. One strategy that's been interesting to me that campus pastors have been using very effectively is just having social times, not even that are necessarily tied to a gospel presentation, but just come and eat with us, come and you know hang out with us, we're going to play volleyball, come mm-hmm. and be with us. And they said they've gotten more Christian conversations from that because they're building those relationships yeah, first. Oh, so if so your good. church can even just have social events, like come to the church, we're going to have dinner, come, we're going to whatever, be together, that would be a huge first step. And then the second one I would say is this, Gen Z's loves it when your actions match your words and they care about the poor and they care about injustice and that the Bible, that's the Bible's sweet spot, right? So like mm-hmm. if you have a church that serves the poor, you have a church that is tangibly concerned about injustice and and by injustice i mean like somebody who um needs a needs housing or somebody who's um you know paying way too much interest on their truck payment or like those things that are truly unjust Mm. and that we can truly step into if you you can make show that your actions are matching your words they will be right there with you they Mm. are so concerned about stuff like that so um that's just Uh, an easy place to plug in Christianity for them. Okay, that's such, such good wisdom, Sarah. Thanks for that. Sarah Zylstra is a senior writer and faith and work editor for the Gospel Coalition. She's also the co-author of Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. Sarah, thanks so much for being here with us today. Thanks so much for having me. And listeners, thank you for joining us today. We'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.